I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. 20th century pop culture was full of depictions of what semi and fully autonomous cars could look like. I mean, take Herbie the Love Bug. And Herbie, shifting for himself against the supercar. Or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Maybe you remember the super cool Trans Am from Knight Rider. I am the voice of Knight Industry 2000's microprocessor. K-I-T-T for easy reference. A kit if you prefer. Those cars could troubleshoot, talk back, and rescue you from a sticky situation. But that fantasy is now becoming more or less a reality in some cities, except it's not as exciting as it may seem. Today, a look at the current buzz around robo-taxis and the future of driverless cars. There's a strange sight roaming the streets of cities like San Francisco and Phoenix, Arizona. Robo-taxis. The taxis, Alphabet's Waymo and General Motors' Cruise, have been under development for years, so they aren't exactly new, but this period we're in still feels like a turning point. Except, unlike in the classic sci-fi film Total Recall... Where am I? You're in a Johnny Cab. There's no retro cab driver robot at the wheel. I mean, what am I doing Uh, here? I'm sorry. Would you please rephrase the question? And the car doesn't double as your accomplice in high-speed chases with your enemies. Drive! Drive! It's just you in the back seat, and a steering wheel that operates itself. Freaky. It's definitely not like what you see in the movies. It's just a car that moves eerily slow and carefully throughout the streets. My name is Liz Lindquister, and I'm a data journalist at the San Francisco Standard. I cover tech and community in San Francisco and have been on the RoboTaxi beat for the last couple of months. Liz has been observing these cars as both a reporter and a rider. The first time I rode in a RoboTaxi was, I think, January of this year, and it was kind of a surreal experience. You just get in the back seat, there's a robot voice that says, please put on your seatbelt and get ready for the ride, and it just goes. I think to see in the front seat of the cruise car, the wheel turning, but nobody sitting there was kind of a wild experience. And then also seeing people's reactions outside of the car was really strange. I think people were confused, like why is there no driver, but two or three people in the back seat. It's surprisingly very similar to taking an Uber or a Lyft. And you just order a car. You know, you ask it to come to your house or wherever you're at, and you can take it to most parts of the city. And so once you order a car, it'll come anywhere between two and 20 minutes to arrive. But once you get into the cars, that's when it really feels like a unique tech experience because for both Waymo and Cruise, they look and operate effectively like normal cars. And they have like a steering wheel and pedals and all of those regular driving pieces that you'd see in a car. They're just nobody operating them. 
And there are some slight differences between them. Cruise is a little bit more party, fun, youthful energy. Their cars are named after quirky animals or foods like churro or apple. Whereas Waymer's cars are like Jaguars. It feels like a very luxury experience and they're larger as well. There are other companies that are also forming new self-driving cars. So Amazon has this company called Zooks and they are working on what they call a fully autonomous vehicle. It doesn't have a wheel or any of the traditional hallmarks of a driver forward car. It's basically just a moving vehicle on wheels that goes completely on its own. The cars try to, to drop you off at a precise destination, but it's not as accurate as when you would have an Uber or a Lyft because you can't really tell the car, oh, maybe go on the left side of the road here, or maybe drop me off a couple of feet away from where I put the pin on in the app. So there are a couple of things just in the user experience that are very unique problems to riding in a robo-taxi. The robo-taxi revolution really started to hit the gas in San Francisco around summer of last year. And then since then, two major companies, General Motors-backed Cruise and then Alphabet or Google-backed Waymo, the two of them have just been refining their technologies and expanding their fleets, at the same time trying to capture regulatory approval from the city and the state in order to drive their cars as effectively taxis. And so over the last year or so, it's just been the development of robo-taxis becoming another form of public transportation in the city. And today, there's just a lot of debates about how safe they are, how they fit in the city's transportation infrastructure. There's this regulatory body called the California Public Utilities Commission, and they had the power to allow Cruise and Waymo effectively unlimited expansion to all of San Francisco. And they voted on August 10th in favor of the two companies. So since then, there have just been a handful of safety and emergency incidents where robo-taxis have been involved that have actually spurred the city on to ask for just the curtailment of these fleets. After Cruise got into an incident with a fire truck where I believe they crashed, just a couple of days after the CPUC meeting, Cruise actually cut their fleet in half in San Francisco just to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out what went wrong. And since then, there have been a handful of higher profile incidents with robo-taxis that have caused some concern among residents and state regulatory bodies as well, including the California DMV. Probably the biggest incident that happened was that on, I think, August 14th, just a couple of days after the meeting, there was an incident where a pedestrian was just walking on the street and they were struck by another vehicle, not a robo-taxi, just a driver. And that person was really critically injured. And so when emergency officials, fire department and paramedics came to the scene, they realized this person was in critical condition, had to be carried to the hospital. And two or three robo-taxis were on the scene and one of them got stalled in a lane and Per San Francisco Fire Department reports, they said that the cars stalled in such a location and for a long enough time that it delayed the patient's transport to the hospital and the patient later died. And I think the fire department has been really frustrated with these kinds of incidents happening where cruises get in the way of emergency situations. But crews, you know, pretty roundly denied that their cars did anything significantly wrong. And so there's just these kind of tensions rising between city officials and emergency responders and these companies and just how obstructive and intrusive these cars actually are on city streets. 
One thing that's really interesting about robo taxis is that people feel very strongly about them both ways, both supporting and completely against them. So on the one hand, you have a lot of tech interest groups, including Cruise and Waymo, and folks that are really excited are just about new technology and new forms of transportation coming to the city, so they're very in support of it. And then there's also a handful of accessibility, disability, and safety groups that argue that Cruise and Waymo, these kinds of cars don't ever drive impaired, they can never drive drunk or high or what have you, and so they actually think that these cars will make the road safer because they're encouraging other human drivers to follow the rules more often. And then on the other hand, there's also different activist groups, including this one called Safe Street Rebel, which started placing traffic cones on top of the robo taxis to get them to stop moving on San Francisco streets. And then you also have union activists of taxi and rideshare drivers that are concerned that these cars are basically going to replace their industry. I think the appeal of it is first and foremost the novelty of it and I think that a lot of people also think that it will be a more private and enjoyable car share experience. I think some folks like to avoid Uber or Lyft because they don't want to deal with the awkward human interactions or they have had in the past bad experiences with Uber drivers or taxi drivers and, and want to have another option that is more private or personal. With the privacy of robo-taxis means that people can potentially get away with a lot more things than they might have if they were in a car with a taxi driver or an Uber driver in the front seat. So in reporting on robo-taxis, we were curious, are people doing things in the back seat that they wouldn't normally do with the person in the front? And one of the things we found was that a handful of people were hooking up or having sex in the back of robo-taxis, specifically cruise cars because there was just some excitement or novelty in the experience. There's probably a bit of voyeurism because the cruise cars are kind of like fishbowls. You can see into them really easily. And then a handful of other people would tweet about drinking beers in the back of the car, not having to worry about those kinds of rules on the road when there's no driver present. I think it was a very special experience to get to ride in a robo-taxi because it's not something I ever thought I would see in my lifetime. And I think that's been the gist of much of San Francisco's reaction to it is that the robo-taxi revolution hit San Francisco and it hit very quick. But I also haven't really been riding in them very much lately because their fleets are smaller in light of all of the different incidents that have happened. And so I think for myself personally, at least, I would maybe avoid riding in some of them until Cruise and Waymo figure out what they can do in emergency situations. There's a really interesting tension between these private companies and how they work with public entities like city officials, state officials who regulate them. I think in San Francisco, it's been a really great example of how the state regulation of these cars has really impacted the city. A lot of city officials have felt kind of hamstrung in the whole approval process for these cars to roll out in the city. You know, with the California public utilities vote and also the DMV's approval, it means that City transit officials really didn't have a lot of agency to push back on these cars other than voicing their frustration. And so I think a lot of people are confused and concerned at how quickly these private companies were able to basically expand their operations and turn cities into, I guess, test grounds for robo-taxis. One thing that's really interesting to me as a reporter on this too, has been seeing how it's just really affected the broader question about transportation 
in San Francisco and beyond. Our city's public transportation system has faced a lot of financial troubles in the last year or two. And so to have another private car service show up, another rideshare option, I think that has really frustrated a lot of people who see public transit in a crisis moment in the city and in California broadly. So there's a lot of really interesting questions about how this intersects, not just with public safety, but with transportation and with unionizing and, and rights for taxi and rideshare drivers. Liz Lindquister is a data journalist at the San Francisco Standard. So far, we've seen one of the robo-taxis get stuck in wet concrete. Others stall during a major music festival because, according to Cruz, wireless bandwidth constraints cause delayed connectivity. They've also been involved in collisions and other incidents with emergency vehicles and cause traffic jams. And as we heard, there's been a lot of pushback from locals in San Francisco. In August, the state of California greenlit a 24-7 service expansion for Cruise and Waymo. But just last week, San Francisco formally requested that state regulators review the hearing that allowed the 24-7 citywide commercial operations. The request also includes a call to pause the expansion. Still, there are plans to expand to more cities in North America. The vehicles into which we have built efficient, smooth-running, vibrant power answer thousands of needs in the course of our daily existence. Marching ahead into a still greater future in almost every unit of transportation today, the spark of life for our modern automobiles. Nora Young, this is Spark, and we're talking about the rise of robo-taxis and autonomous vehicles more broadly. Right now, I'd like to introduce you to Billy Riggs. I'm a professor of management and engineering at University of San Francisco, and I focus on transportation innovation. Billy recently led a pilot study with students riding in cruise cars. They wanted to investigate what actually happens when people start to use these driverless taxis in real-world conditions. We see from the research that most of the time what people are doing is they're they're taking real trips. They're going to the grocery store, they're taking a late night trip to a convenience store, they're taking their laundry. They're really engaging in these vehicles as a part of the transportation network. Billy looks at autonomous vehicles through the lens of urban planning and policy. And that's important because planning for autonomous vehicles isn't just about the cars themselves. It's about what the overall pattern of travel looks like in our communities, especially in cities where commuting can be, frankly, a nightmare. How do you balance needs of drivers, active transit like walking and biking, buses, and yes, autonomous vehicles? Designing streets really doesn't have to change when we think about automated vehicles. Back, you know, 2015, 2016, when when I was you know, really just starting to look at connected and automated vehicles, I think we felt like there had to be a lot of redundant sensors and technology out there that governments had to install. And what we realized is that really wasn't the case, that the computers and the onboard technology, the sensors in these vehicles, they can pick up on everything and more that's in the built environment that's out in our cities that we um, 
as human drivers see. And they can ingest that and they can really make potentially better driving decisions. So what do those streets look like? You know, ideally, those streets look like the streets that we have or in my view, as, a, as an urban planner and someone that wants to see more multimodal cities, one goal for the future of cities, be it uh, San Francisco, Chicago, Toronto, Vancouver, it's really to create more opportunities for walking, cycling and public transit organizations and, and then using real estate on the street to do that. So can we talk a bit about that multimodal aspect? How do you need to think about integrating all these different ways of getting around people's own desire to drive their own cars, the autonomous vehicles, walking, biking, buses, all that stuff? Well, I think this goes back to kind of what a city, what a, what a state, what national policy priority should be in terms of facilitating certain types of travel that are grounded in sustainability. And we think about the promise that autonomous vehicles do create is less bicycle and pedestrian fatalities, less fatalities in general from careless mistakes. But that doesn't change the civic priority, I think, that we have to invest in cities where people have the option not to get in a car. And I think what's happened with a lot of cities in North America is is we've forgotten that in many cases. And, and many of our cities that you know have said that they prioritize transit still fail to put their money where their mouth is and invest in roadways, but also invest in the political interference that happens when people that want to drive are inconvenienced by slow traffic. Because at the end of the day, having less lanes dedicated to cars, traffic is going to be a lot less convenient and you're going to have more space dedicated towards fast-flowing buses, fast-flowing trains, and convenient walking and cycling. And, and so it's a really important policy priority. And with that policy priority, you're opening up physical space on the road to allocate space to, to other users. And I would say that automated vehicles can be a part of the transit solution. They can be used to reinvigorate and reimagine transit. And we will likely see more and more of that as we look into the future. But it's really about how do we use our streets at the end of the day? Yeah. Are there examples of cities that are kind of leading in this respect in terms of planning for increased automation? One of the cities I think that's done the best job at the start in thinking about physical design for automation is actually Portland, Oregon. And one of the ways they've thought about it is prioritizing for cycling and prioritizing for walking. And so they're really thinking about the main thing they can do as they see more vehicles, whether or not they're small, lightweight shared vehicles for one or two passengers or autonomous shuttles, the main thing they can control is the real estate. And so they're saying, well, we can allocate more lanes or more space to shared vehicles, be they driven autonomously or driven by human drivers. But we can also start to free up parking space because if we're moving to a situation where you acquire a ride and you don't own a car, you can actually reuse parking and you can reuse that space in your garage for a, you know an extra bedroom, uh, an accessory dwelling unit. Um, you can use space on the street for parks, for planting, for water filtration. There's all kinds of opportunities it presents. There's also some great examples in Germany where they're really building purpose-built automated transit in places like Frankfurt and Karlsruhe and Hamburg. 
They're actually building automated shuttles that are actually functioning right now and serving the public. You know, they'll serve anywhere from six to eight people at a time. And it's all on demand, all on your phone. And it's a new way of thinking about accessing a trip that is both reliable and convenient and and maybe not on a fixed route and not on a fixed schedule. But how do you know that you don't end up with a situation where you just have way more people who maybe wouldn't have bought their own cars so now you have tons and tons of robocars crowding up the streets. Like how, how, how do you know that's not going to be what happens? One of the things I always remind people is these vehicles are really expensive. So a lot of people think, oh, it'll be like turning on a faucet and all of a sudden there'll be a thousand robo taxis or a thousand robotic shuttles in my city. And just from a sheer market deployment, there's just no financial way, but also production way that that'll happen. And so it's much different, for example, than when we saw Uber and Lyft come to existence and everybody who was anybody could just make their car yeah. more or less a taxi. And that's not the reality of the way these vehicles will deploy. But also, I think one thing that we can take solace in is that when you run a fleet and you own a vehicle, you're incentivized to make that fleet as efficient as possible. And every mile that you drive when you don't have a passenger and every mile you drive where you're not maximizing the number of passengers in your vehicle, you're losing money. And so the economic incentive to actually have more people miles traveled, particularly for a lot of these private companies, is a different economic incentive even than our many of our public transportation operators have that'll run a you know an 80 person bus with you know three to five people sometimes in the in the middle of the night. You know I like to see it is we may actually have to have policy that does a, a market cap on number of vehicles that can enter into a market at a time. But we have time to make that decision and we also have time to actually evaluate how we can integrate these and enhance these vehicles and this technology and enhance our public transportation systems. Right. So what are some of the sort of social implications of having driverless cars on the roads and cities? One of the things that we need to be aware of is both the opportunity that these vehicles create to open up to areas that have not been traditionally served, particularly areas that have been less wealthy, that have had kind of our brown populations, particularly in the U.S., that have been somewhat marginalized. But also, I think that when we think about some of the dystopian future that people talk about, I think there is a fear that people will be on a device, they'll get in a vehicle that's driven by a robot or a computer program, and they will just continue to be on that device and they will sociologically just disengage. But a lot of these companies may come up with invented ways to actually engage people together in vehicles, whether or not it's, you know, introducing a sing-along mode to your favorite song in the car, <laughs> or it's, you know, as, as simple as like in providing, you know, some details about communities that you may have, have things in common with when you get into vehicles. Right. Because you do think about, I mean, there are so many areas of our lives where now we don't have the opportunity for those sort of lightweight interactions with other people. And, you know, Arguably, having a conversation with a cab driver is like one of the great sort of small pleasures of life. And is this not just sort of extending the areas where we don't have connection with other people in increasingly anonymous cities? It's totally right. I think I think who are you going to ask about the weather when you get in this when you get in this car? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think with every innovation, 
there's unexpected consequences that you can that you can deal with. Some of them end up to be challenges, but I like to think also that there's there's a lot of opportunities, there's ideas and ways that people will connect that we haven't thought of yet. But I do give a lot of thought to you know the the future of how we we connect um, socially and emotionally, particularly coming out of the pandemic where all of us had to relearn how to socialize after you know three years of talking yeah. to each other on a screen. From the Spark Archives, 2013, research scientist Ryan Chin. I think that another sort of interesting step is the idea of an autonomous valet, hmm. where when you want a car, you call a car, and the car actually arrives to you, no one in it. Right. <laughs> it sort of crawls to you, and then you get into the car, you actually drive it. And then when you drive it, you drive it somewhere else, you get out of the car, and then it autonomously parks itself. Huh. Or perhaps it autonomously recharges if it's an electric. And ultimately, you want to have the car then go to the next customer. So, you know, you, you pick up and drop. It's just like a taxi cab. So it's almost like a self-driving, autonomous, electric taxi cab. Hmm. Uh, and that, I think, for cities makes a lot of sense because of land and also congestion. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about robo-taxis, the implications of autonomous vehicle technology, and planning for a future with driverless cars. Right now, my guest is Billy Riggs, a professor in management and engineering at the University of San Francisco, who focuses on transportation innovation. Robotaxis are just one model of transport that companies like Cruise and Waymo are developing. Cruise is currently working on getting regulatory approval for a bus-like autonomous vehicle that would shuttle people around. Billy says these developments have altered the conversation around affordable transportation options. It allows us to think about reinventing a platform, particularly the bus that we really haven't rethought in 70 years. And so we have Cruise and Waymo and Zooks all pursuing this lightweight platform that goes fairly fast. It can go fast as fast as a bus, but it may not operate like a traditional transit line. And what we're finding is that from an operational standpoint, it may provide a really cost-effective way for cities to rethink service, particularly in locations that they've had trouble financially serving, but also at times in the day where it's just really not that cost effective for a public transit agency to run a route where, where service might be for a handful of people. But it's a handful of people that may have, they may be high cost, but they're also high need to serve. And I like to think that, you know, opening the aperture for a lot of these, what we call high cost, high need populations in cities is really an important discussion for the future of public transit. And if the private sector can be a part of us, you know, paying for those rides, and it's not just about eliminating a driver, it's really about route efficiency. It's about really thinking hard about the fuel type, the cost of operations. And so I think it's an opportunity for some reflection for public transportation operators, but also an opportunity really for them to think about innovation going forward. You know, as we see a lot of these companies move beyond what is their development platform, what they're using to build their technology, these small vehicles to these vehicles where they can carry multiple people and, and they can make money, but they can also serve the public. Yeah, they, these are private for-profit yeah. corporations. So how how do we ensure that 
this doesn't end up sort of starving other parts of the public affordable transit structure. I mean, how do we make sure that there aren't just sort of shuttle buses dropping people off on popular routes and that in some ways it's integrated with other, you know, last mile type of affordable transportation? You've hit the nail on the head. That's the question we need to solve right now. And it's interesting. That's the discussion I wish more cities were happening. How do we have these integrated services? But to say that these services are going to starve public transit systems, I mean, I think if we really are are honest with ourselves and civic leaders do a lot of reflection, our public transportation systems are already starved. They're hanging on by a thread. We don't have the money to continually bail them out for the next 50 years, which is what we've been doing for the last 50 years. In in most public transit organizations around the world, we make 17 to 25% fare box. It's 80% subsidy right now. And maybe it's an opportunity to do the taxpayer a service and provide higher quality and more reliable service that actually improves a lot of particularly stuff in the last three to five miles, while, you know, shoring up a lot of high capacity rail, longer haul commute lines that actually are equally as starved as our bus systems. So I I think it's really an opportunity to ask tough questions, but also to think about how do we best serve the public? And it may not be the way we've done business in the past. Mm. Is there an argument for like limiting the number of these cars that can just drive around without passengers so that it's not causing traffic jams? Yeah, I mean, you know, right now, there's no more than 700 vehicles on the road at one time. And that part of the issue is we've been talking about these vehicles in isolation of understanding how human drivers cause traffic jams because we just really don't have data on what happens when somebody's lorry breaks down and, you know, in traffic, we don't have data on what UPS and FedEx do in terms of double parking and deliveries. So I think what is really happening in San Francisco is because of this innovation, the three to 600 vehicles that are taking a small fraction of the trips, of the million trips that occur in uh, San Francisco every day, they're elevating this, this dialogue about what should we think about traffic flow? In a transit-first city, do we, do we prioritize privately owned traffic flow through our city, or do we need to allocate more roadway space to public forms of transportation? And so I think it's one of those things where we're having half the dialogue right now. What will probably happen over the coming years is we'll have the full dialogue on How do we prioritize roadways for vehicles of all types, whether or not they're privately owned vehicles that we store in our garages or these shared vehicles that may be uh, serving a broader market, even though they may only be carrying one passenger at a time? Mm -hmm. Cruz halved its fleet after incidents with emergency vehicles. Can you talk to me a bit about what some of the sort of kinks are that need to be ironed out in the technology and, and how it interacts with its surroundings? You know, one of the things that's super resolvable phenomenon that's happened is really close interaction with law enforcement. And I think what we've seen, and I'll use the word sensationalized in the media a little bit, is a handful of interactions where we've seen, you know, kind of difficult awareness when we have law enforcement or a fire department responding to a scene. 
where sometimes there's training that maybe has been provided and, and, they, and for example, a, um, a law enforcement officer necessarily isn't abiding precisely by the training in terms of hand gestures or actions that, that they're supposed to engage with with the vehicles. But at the end of the day, you know, I think refining data transmission between emergency management vehicles and automated vehicles is a huge opportunity. There is technology out there and this kind of infrastructure investment has been made and is being made in Europe where emergency management vehicles will actually interact and provide uh, green light technology for all uh, through all traffic lights. And we don't have that in the U.S. So it's interesting that part of, I think, what's happening and I think is that we really haven't invested in some of this other civic infrastructure where we we've given emergency responders priority on our roadways by connecting them digitally to stoplights and allowing them priority in some of these lanes. And there's, there was one instance where there was a collision where if you think about if the, the fire engine would have actually had a, a solid green light, there would have been no issue with this chicken game. The vehicles had to play at this stoplight where well, the, the fire engine thought that he was supposed to stop and the cruise vehicles thought that he was supposed to stop. And lo and behold, there was a there was a mistake that was made. But that's going to happen. I mean, I think it'll happen less and less as we kind of refine a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Billy, thanks so much for your insights on this. Yeah, thanks. It was a fun conversation. Billy Riggs is a professor at the University of San Francisco. Now, we reached crews for comment regarding the safety and performance of their vehicles. In response, a spokesperson for the company said, and this is a quote, improving road safety is our chief mission, not only for cruise passengers, but for everyone we share the road with. We're always improving our technology and apologize to anyone inconvenienced by these incidents. But it is important that they are viewed against the deeply troubling status quo of injuries and road deaths in our cities. AVs are still novel and certain behavior understandably attracts a lot of attention, but we're proud of our safety record and remain committed to doing everything possible to make roads safer. We're working hard to make sure our service is safe, clean, and open to everyone, and riders agree to do their part when they sign up to use our service. Our community rules and terms of service detail what's prohibited while on a trip, and we will take appropriate action against anyone who violates those guidelines. End quote. We also reached out to Waymo, but they did not respond in time for our deadline. From the Spark Archives, 2012, human-computer interaction expert, the late Clifford Ness. We begin to, to a very large degree, start having to think about our cars as teammates, as partners in achieving goals. And that turns out, for humans as well as um, cars, to be rather difficult. We've all had people we've worked with and partnered with where the experience has just been fabulous. Mm -hmm. And we've all had experiences in which it's been absolutely terrible uh -huh. for, for a number of different social reasons. So as we design these cars, we have to bear in mind all those different social dynamics that make teams successful or unsuccessful and act accordingly. Could you give me an example? Sure. So um, one of the nice things that happens with people is if we're working together and you do something that doesn't make sense to me, mm -hmm. I can say to you, hey, why did you do that? <laughs> right. With cars right now, intelligent cars, if they do something that's puzzling, we can't ask why. And as a result, just as with you, if you couldn't tell me why you did something, 
It reduces my trust in you. You know, what are her goals? What are her motives? What's going on? (laughs) And so one of the real challenges we're going to have to address is some ability to sort of communicate with the car to understand what the car's thinking and saying. And, you know, the car doesn't think like us. Mm -hmm. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, the long road ahead to a future of driverless cars. We've heard about the robo-taxis currently operating in San Francisco and Phoenix, and the robo-buses shuttling people in several German cities. Here in Canada, the first self-driving car debuted on our public roads in 2018, affectionately called the Autonomous. There's just so many choices, so many decisions happening in real time. It's really a pretty awesome experience to try to build that. The project lead was this guy. I'm Stephen Wasslander. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto Institute for Aerospace Studies, and I'm a researcher in the perception systems for autonomous vehicles. Stephen and his team of students, faculty, and postdoctoral researchers spent years building the autonomous with Canadian road conditions in mind. You know, winter conditions, snow on top of vehicles, and a lot of our detection and tracking algorithms, a lot of our driving control and planning methods all translated really nicely to the winter scene. And we even went so far as to build a representative data set of those kind of challenging conditions to to let the world see, you know, it's possible you can apply your algorithms here too. Please bring your self-driving cars to Canada. We hear a lot about driverless cars as a sort of novelty, but we rarely talk about how the technology actually works. Good thing we have Stephen here. So they start with a a large assortment of sensors, right? They have cameras pointing in all directions. They often have radar in the bumpers. Um, And then they have this uh, LIDAR or uh, laser scanner, which uh, collects a 3D point cloud of information that provides depth to everything in the scene in all directions around the vehicle about 10 times a second. So with those sensor choices, you now have a huge amount of information about what's around the vehicle. And the the process of perception uh, happens happens next. So we have to identify all of the lane markings, the signs, the traffic lights, of course, so the static elements in the scene. And we also have to detect all of the moving objects, the cars, the pedestrians, and the cyclists, and then track them over time and then make predictions about what they're going to do next. Um, From there, we move into planning. So we pick a behavior of some sort. You know, do I want to stay in this lane, follow the car in front of me, come to a stop, change lanes, turn right, etc.? And then it becomes uh, the execution of that maneuver, right? So follow the center line of the lane as it curves around this corner, et cetera. And then the last step is what we call control, where you actually identify the steering, brake, and gas pedal positions that you need for the vehicle to do exactly what you want it to do. So that whole pipeline exists in every self-driving car, and the specific way in which each component is implemented is somewhat different, but that gives you the basic structure. And as I understand it, a lot of your research focuses specifically on perceptions. What are the Correct. kind of specific, this seems fairly important to me, uh, what are some of the specific challenges around uh, perception in particular? 
Um, so perception involves the tracking of all the humans in the scene, right? The pedestrians, the cyclists, the vehicles. And so we look at essentially collecting large amounts of data from vehicles that are in the field, identifying in that data all of the existing objects and uh, stringing those uh, across time. So you have, you know, the evolution of their motion over time. And then, yeah, we use uh, modern AI techniques, deep learning techniques in order to extract object bounding boxes, um, segment of the uh, individual pixels and point cloud elements that associate with each object. And then we track those and make sure that we can, you know, correctly predict what's going to happen next for each of the objects in the scene. So you've been working in this field for about a decade now. Can you talk to me about some of the progress that you've seen over the course of that time? Yeah, when we started, you know, 10 years ago, this um, idea of being able to deploy large scale neural networks to solve all of these problems was really, you know, in its infancy. And so we would just take whatever existing networks were out there um, and train them on whatever data we had available. And that process has become much more refined and much more specific. So we have, you know, much more precise models of uh, the objects we're looking for. We have much more representative data sets. We have better training techniques. And so we're slowly improving the reliability with which we can do these detections and uh, develop these tracks. Um, and, and we're starting to see where those systems have limitations, right? So you can imagine the world that we live in has sort of an infinite variety of objects and you know people do crazy things sometimes they'll they'll carry weird objects or they'll make modifications to their vehicles and these networks if they've never seen those before they don't necessarily know how to respond and so this is the area I'm now working in is trying to address what we call the long tail or the open world problem where there's many different things that happen but they only happen very rarely and so those are hard things for a learning system to understand in advance especially if it hasn't seen it before. This seems like a very hard problem, this idea of novelty, right? I mean, if you think about, you know, over the summer, 9 million bees that fell off a truck in southern Ontario, who right. would ever imagine, you know, trying to predict that that would happen? So how do you approach this incredibly hard problem of, of novelty or, or rare but perhaps inevitable occurrences. So what we're trying to do in my lab, actually, is we're trying to train the networks to not only output the answers that they see, so where cars are, where pedestrians are, where cyclists are, but also to associate with each of those answers some measure of confidence or uncertainty. Um, and we want this not to just be a single value, but we want it to be, I know that that's probably a vehicle, but I'm not sure if it's a really long vehicle or a shorter vehicle. I'm not sure if it's really close or really far away. We really want to have granular understanding of what the uncertainty is in a situation. You can imagine humans do this too, right? When you see something strange, an optical illusion and, you know, at a distance, your attention will immediately go there and you'll try to resolve the ambiguities and you'll try to figure that out. And we want to have our uh, learning systems and our autonomy systems doing the same thing. If they understand the situation and they know where the objects are and they can explain all of the information available in their sensors, we just carry on, right? But if there's something that stands out that's uncertain, we want to collect more information and we want to maybe delay decision making or reduce the speeds through the environment until we're certain that we know how to handle the situation. Are there any other sort of current stumbling blocks beyond that problem? I think one of the big things that uh, maybe, you know, the public generally doesn't quite understand about all of these learning systems and this advanced AI is that it really doesn't have a, a common sense layer. It doesn't have a conceptual understanding of the world that it's living in. It really is just a pattern recognizing system for the most part. And so when the systems fails, it tends to be doing reasoning tasks and, and, and higher level understanding of situations that are not common. And so I think that's a real challenge. 
challenge, right? So the hardest parts left in autonomous driving, in my mind, are all around uh, prediction and interaction with other humans. So, you know, I may guess that you're about to turn left, but I don't know if you're going to turn left before me or after me. You know, I may see a clump of pedestrians on the sidewalk, but I won't know if four of them are going to the left and three are going to the right or if they're going to change their opinion halfway through. Uh, so that task of understanding and interacting with the people in the environment, that's really, I think, where the, the crux of the remaining challenges are for the self-driving companies. Yeah, because of course, when we humans are driving, we're not only looking at the road, we may be looking at other drivers and there's eye Absolutely. contact and there's, oh, you know, Steve is talking to the person in the passenger side, so I better be careful or whatever. Uh, do you think in some ways it'll be the challenge will be more when there's human drivers and autonomous drivers at the same time? Will it be easier when they're all autonomous, if they're all autonomous? I, so that's never been the expectation of the industry. We always knew there would be this very long, you know, mixed environment with human drivers and autonomous drivers. We always knew that we have to solve the problem of dealing with humans. But what's really difficult about it is when the autonomous vehicle makes some decision and starts to execute an action, that's also a signal. That's a communication to the other drivers in the scene, and they then adapt their behaviors around that. So we could build autonomous cars that were aggressive, barrel through intersection kind of drivers, right? But I don't think anyone would be that happy with that. Uh, and, and, and so you really have to add these layers in and this um, sequential decision making. It's almost, uh, it's related to game theory, actually, where, you know, you're making choices that affect other players' outcomes, and they then make choices based on your choices, and you have to resolve this sort of iterative, problem if you want to come to a, a concrete solution. This is Spark. This is Spark. This is Spark. From CBC Radio. How automatic can we get? I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about the exciting and concerning prospect of a future of autonomous vehicles. Right now, my guest is Stephen Waslander, a professor at the Institute for Aerospace Studies and director of the Toronto Robotics and AI Laboratory at U of T. As a leader in the field of autonomous aerial and ground vehicles, Stephen understands the challenges these vehicles face in varied conditions, from snow and fog to indoor spaces like underground parking lots. So as I was describing earlier, we have this plethora of sensors and, and the only one that doesn't work indoors is GPS. And GPS on self-driving cars is really actually sort of a backup system. It says, you know, you're roughly in this area of space, you know, about a meter uh, accuracy relative to a global coordinate frame, and that helps you pull up the correct map. But in order to drive, you know, within 10 centimeters of the center of a lane, you actually need to know your position even more precisely than that. And so we end up relying on the cameras and the LIDAR sensors to position ourselves relative to knowledge in the environment ahead of time. And that transfers indoors just as easily as outdoors. So parking garages and the like, if we can build maps in advance, right, or if we can build them on the fly while we're driving through them, then it's possible to navigate them just as easily. One of the, the prevailing arguments in favor of robo-taxis and driverless cars more, more broadly is that they're safer than human-driven cars. What do you make of that? Are they, are they really safer? They could be. Um, I think what's amazing about the technology, right, is that it never gets distracted. It's never drowsy. It's never drunk, right? These are the limitations we have as humans. But at the same time, as I've sort of been hinting at, it doesn't have a full understanding of the world it lives in. It doesn't, you know, from childhood understand that objects persist and that, you know, when you place something on top of something else, it'll stay there, right? The, this spatial reasoning and conceptual reasoning is not yet 
totally uh, learnable. And so we have to program that in as engineers and we have to program it in as much as we can for all of the situations we can think of in advance. And so they have this fundamental limitation. There's some shining examples recently from San Francisco where, you know, a cruise vehicle drove straight into wet concrete and actually got stuck in a bed of, you know, molten mess. Um, another one, the, the same vehicles drove right into a traffic accident scene that had been limited with caution tape, right? They didn't understand what the caution tape was for, didn't see it potentially, right? That logic just hadn't been programmed in. And these kind of failures are still happening. And every time they get uncovered, you know, the team of engineers goes back and resolves that one. But there's still a long list of these, the long tail I was referring to earlier. There's, there's a lot of uh, different variations of what can happen. And so it's not always clear if the self-driving cars are going to be safer than humans because they get stuck in different situations than humans do. Yeah. So what overall are the benefits of these cars on our roads? Like what role do you see them playing? I think ultimately they will become safer. They'll also, you know, they extend mobility to everyone, right? So small children, you know, uh, visually impaired people, elderly, right? Um, so it is, it is potentially a less expensive taxi service, right? Um, they'll help reduce costs in trucking on long haul routes. And so I, I think we will see these benefits start to accumulate, but it, it is going to take some time, right? It's a, it's a slow process to lock down as many of these rare events in these strange cases as possible so that we can show that the, the level of safety is above human performance. Yeah, right now, I think they only go at around like 55, 50, 56 kilometers an hour. But is the goal that these things can you know, be trucks on the highway moving at a, a faster rate of speed yep. or cars on the highway? Yeah. So each self-driving car company is making their own decisions about what conditions they want to operate in um, and what they're ready for. So the trucking companies are obviously operating at high speeds on the highways when they perform their runs, but they're limiting it to divided highways only and not doing on-ramps and off-ramps. Uh, the robo-taxi companies are focusing on lower speeds first and on arterials and small residential roads. And then as they gain confidence on those and they have you know evidence that they're performing safely, they can then expand to higher speed thoroughfares. So they're slowly expanding the areas they can work in. And when it comes to that safety factor, like what about the the political aspect and the and the social policy aspect of that? Or even the public acceptance? When do you get to the point of where you're confident that the safety levels are, you know, at a point where you can say, look, this is as safe or safer than having human drivers? That's a very difficult question to answer, I think. Um, it's amazing how quickly people that try the vehicles out are happy with them and get comfortable in, in the experience. You know, we, we have a very uh, poor ability to assess the probability of dangerous events and rare events. But at the same time, as soon as the vehicle does something that you disagree with, right, there's also this sort of reservation and this caution that we hold against them. So um, as the vehicles become, you know, more prevalent, I think we're seeing a bit of backlash now in like, hey, it's slowing me down. Hey, it's in my way in the parking lot. Um, these things interfere with the deployment of the vehicle. It'll, it'll take longer and it will require more, you know, refined uh, maneuver capabilities um, before we see them really operating at large scale. Beyond cars, where do you see progress in autonomous passenger vehicles? Like, are people looking into this for airplanes, for example? 
So there's definitely some really nice uh, aerospace examples as well. It's almost an easier problem in that there's not a lot of traffic up there and there's a lot of free space. So the, the challenge there is, so we've seen, you know, a lot of work in things like delivery drones, personal electric mobility, aerial mobility in, in urban settings. There, the big bottleneck is really the takeoff and landing, right? So whenever you interact with the ground level and all of the things we're learning about how to predict what humans are doing, how to, uh, you know, make smart decisions and interact with humans in the human world, those translate between all of these various robotic tasks. So I can imagine, you know, as self-driving becomes more common and the techniques become more robust, we can extend that to operations in hospitals, in warehouses, in factories, in uh, shopping malls, you know, uh, robots uh, performing all kinds of tasks that were still hard for them, you know, even just five years ago. What do you think some of the sort of regulatory or, or liability issues might be here? Like if there is an accident, particularly if a car doesn't have, you know, a steering wheel or something like that. Right. So the, the liability question is, I think, still a little bit open. We've seen some automotive manufacturers say they will simply assume the liability themselves in order to sell these vehicles. And that then really, I think, slows down their uh, timelines for deployment. It, it looks to be a bit of an open question. So I think we'll have to see how that plays out. In the previous cases, it was always a testing environment. There was always a human sitting in the driver's seat when there was an accident. And so then the responsibility sort of falls on the driver and the driver's company, right? And so now that we're seeing these robo fleets that are being deployed without drivers at all, the responsibility rests squarely on the, the company itself if there's any incidents. Yeah. I know that there are some specific challenges with um, autonomous vehicles in Canadian winters, <laughs> all cold mm -hmm. country winters. So how soon do you think we might see robo taxis and autonomous vehicles more broadly in Canada? Yeah, so the companies are already working on nighttime and they're they're handling fog and rain conditions already to some extent, although the amount that they're testing in those is significantly less than what they're doing in, in daylight and, and sunshine. And I think you can think of winter as sort of an extension of that set of adverse weather conditions. For the most part, it's very much the same kind of challenge, right? Your sensor information is slightly degraded. Um, the behaviors that people undertake are slightly different. So you have to just learn a, a slightly new set of conditions in which to operate. It's the same kind of learning that they have to do every time they move to a new city, you know, where the traffic behavior patterns are a little bit different. You know, there's local, everybody turns right on a red or nobody turns right on a red. These kind of variations happen locally. And so I think weather is just yet another one of these factors that needs to be learned. Um, we do see it as a little bit more challenging in that things get quite slippery and your perception is severely limited, particularly in, in really bad weather conditions. And so there is definitely some work at the extreme end to make sure that the vehicles stay safe when they get, say, caught in a sudden thunderstorm or lightning storm or or, or snowstorm. But uh, for the most part, it looks like it, it shouldn't be too much slower for things to come to Canada. Thanks so much for your insights on this. Thanks for having me. Stephen Waslander is a professor in the Institute for Aerospace Studies and the director of the Toronto Robotics and AI Laboratory at the University of Toronto. Been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Parisi, Samarit Johannes, Samir Chabra, and me, Nora Young. And by Liz Lindquister, Billy Riggs, and Stephen Waslander. And from the Spark archives, Ryan Chin and the late Clifford Nass. Follow Spark on the CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.